It's often been said that, that history repeats itself. You've probably heard that. It's not literally true. I think Mark Twain probably said it better when he said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Uh, and that does seem to be true. There seem to be patterns that tend to repeat throughout history. Uh, just one example I, I thought of, if you start to make the list of, of the number of men who took power someplace violently and then tried to hang on to that power using just terror, fear, uh, and violence to hang on to power, you'll be there a while making that list. That is a pattern that is repeated over and over and over. But as, as history sort of repeats itself, it seems like every, every new generation is sort of darker, uglier, uh, nastier, more depressing. And we're going to see that a little bit this morning. We're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. And if you've been here while we've studied through the book of 2 Samuel, you're going to think, man, is, is, does this sound familiar to anyone else? It, sh- it will. If you haven't been here regularly, don't worry about it. This will stand just fine on its own. But history's going to repeat itself a little bit in a weird way this morning. Let's, let's dive in. We're going to read this chapter just a in chunks like we've been doing, uh, starting with just the first two verses, which read this way. This is 2 Samuel chapter 20. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan, even to Jerusalem. That's the setting and the setup for this chapter. And some of it needs some some explanation. Where we're at in the story, David is once, David is king, but it's been a little rocky lately for David. David had a son named Absalom who rebelled against his father, organized a coup, overthrew his father's government, kicked David out of Jerusalem and took over for a time. Then forces of the two men fought a war which David's men won and Absalom was killed. And now what we read last week, people loyal to David are bringing him back into Jerusalem to be king. One thing that gets a little confusing in reading the Old Testament from the last few chapters and for the rest of the book is how this word right here gets used, Israel. Because sometime up until this point, it has always been used to describe a nation made up of 12 tribes that were the descendants of a guy named Jacob, all of the tribes together. But we're already seeing a, div- a division that has developed um, between Judah and one tribe that will stick with them, Benjamin, and the rest of the tribes. And in a couple generations after David, Israel's actually going to divide into two separate nations. This one will just be called Judah. And the one up north will keep the name Israel. 
And so when we're reading the Old Testament from this point forward, one thing we have to do is we have to know what does this mean. And in this chapter, when we read the word Israel, David's not on that team. Okay? David is with Judah. The rest of the tribes are sort of separate right now. Does that make sense? Uh, so today's story is the story of yet another rebellion against David. Didn't we just get done with one of those? It's led by a guy named Sheba. And our author does something he doesn't normally do. Usually he just sort of presents the facts and lets us as readers decide what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. Not in this case. He calls this dude Sheba right from the beginning a worthless fellow. Uh, the Hebrew says he's a son, ben, ben Belial, a son of Belial, not a compliment. He's a scoundrel, your Bible might say. And if your Bible says something like he's a troublemaker, uh, that's true, but it's just not strong enough. This guy says he's, this, this guy is a tremendous jerk, our author says. This guy, Sheba, aside from being a tremendous jerk, was from the tribe of Benjamin. The previous king, King Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now that tribe has allied itself with David, and this guy, Sheba, ain't happy about it. Okay? And here's what Sheba does. First, we will see that Sheba's a military man. He was probably in Absalom's army, almost surely in Absalom's army. And, and here's how we know that, because during this victory parade where David's followers are, are carting him across the Jordan River and back up into Jerusalem, this guy uh, blows the trumpet, we're told. He blew the trumpet. He's not doing the special music during the coronation ceremony. That's not what that means. He's giving a military signal to the men who used to serve under him, almost surely. And here's his message. We shouldn't be a part of David's kingdom. That tribe of Judah, we shouldn't trust. Um, that's where we get the word Jews from, by the way. The Jews today, they're all from the tribe of Judah. We shouldn't trust those Jews. We, here's his first message, we should take our toys and go home. And that's what happens here. They don't all take up arms against David, but they do refuse to participate in David's like re-coronation. People from the other 10 tribes, there are some Benjamites who stick with David. Now that's, that's bad, okay? That's the this dividing along tribal lines is dangerous. And David will know that. And so this story, this chapter is the story of how David is going to quell this rebellion before it gets started. But we don't get to talk about that yet. Because verse 3 is, is, is this really weird parenthesis. It's a break from the plot line. It's the only verse that's not about this plot line and it seems to come out of nowhere, and it's, it's very strange, and it doesn't make it feel very good. So we'll get back to this story in a second, but first we have to read this verse. Verse 3, then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and he took the ten women, the concubines whom he had left to keep the house, 
And he placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance, but he did not go into them. So, or in that manner, they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Where'd that come from? Here's the story of these 10 women. It's not a good story. Absalom, David's son, when he kicked David out of Jerusalem, almost the first thing he did when he got to the palace to as publicly as possible proclaim, I'm the king now. I'm the guy that can do whatever he wants around here. And I'm not making up with my father, David. He pitched a tent on top of the palace and in public, one at a time, he will say established physical relationships with these 10, his father's concubines. So David gets back into town and he's like, well, now what do I do with these women who have, you know, of no fault of their own? David doesn't know what to do with them. And you know what he does? He, he just treats them like damaged goods. He does take care of them. By the way, under guard doesn't mean they were put in jail. It means they were protected. He, he did offer them protection and he took care of their needs. But this doesn't make me feel much better about how David treats these women. And then the story starts up again. What's that doing there? Just file that one away. We'll come back to this at the, at the end of our time together. Let's get back to, uh, you know, first, the Bible doesn't whitewash its heroes, you know? It's very honest um, about its heroes. This is a bad look. Let's get back to the story of, of this scoundrel Sheba and his rebellion he's trying to drum up against David. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, his head general, call up the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which the king had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. So take my servants and pursue Sheba so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out after Abishai along with the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Okay, David is a politically astute guy. David knows that a division among tribal lines between the rest of Israel on one side and Judah on the other would be a very dangerous situation. And he doesn't want it to happen. Uh, that's why in verse 6 he says, this Sheba clown could do more damage to the nation than Absalom did. Absalom didn't do the nation any favors. I don't know if you've picked up on that. We're still dealing with the ramifications of Absalom's rebellion. But David said, this could be worse. Because at least Absalom's rebellion was mixed. It wasn't along tribal lines, us against them. It was just all the people who supported Absalom and who were willing to kick out David. And many of them were from the tribe of Judah. David knows how dangerous this could be. Like I said, two generations later, it will be what divides the nation. So David can't let this happen. 
First guy he calls is his brand new head general, a guy named Amasa. Amasa used to be Absalom's head general. But David fired Joab, his own head general, and gave that job to Amasa uh, as a way, as a, as, a, as a fig leaf, a concession to his fellow Jews and the tribe of Judah, a way of saying, look, I'm not going to kill everyone who supported Absalom. Look, I'll make Amasa my new head general. Okay? Uh, David goes to Amasa and says, get the army recollected. Most ancient nations didn't have a huge standing army. They said guys with jobs, and when it was time to fight, the government said, come on, we need you. He says, call out the come on, we need you. Get the draft going. I'll give you three days to be back here with the army. And Amasa fails. So plan B, David turns to one of his nephews, Joab's little brother, a guy named Abishai, who's been with David since before David was king. And they came up together. They've got lots of military experience together. And he says, take your Lord's servants. Take my servants. Take the standing army we do have. The, guy, the professional soldiers. The king's guard, we might call it. This crack elite force, you take them and you go chase this guy. We got to snuff this thing out before it gets started. I can't wait any longer. And so he takes off leading that but I want you to notice one thing. This group of the king's servants, those professional soldiers, full-time army men, are called Joab's men. That will be important in a second. Abishai is the one commanding them. Their general-in-chief is named Amasa, but they still think of themselves as Joab's men. Joab's the guy David fired, probably because Joab killed Absalom. A lot of names in this. Not much I can do about it. Try to hang in there. So Joab's men under Abishai take off to go find this, this knothead who has started his own rebellion by the name of Sheba. Let's go on. When they were at, and that force was at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, original audience, you know the place. Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab, he was with his brother in that crack uh, um, group of soldiers. Joab was dressed in his military attire. And over his outfit was a belt with a sword. Uh, the sword was in its sheath, fas fastened at his waist. And as Joab went forward, the sword fell out. Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? How you doing? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword, which was in Joab's other hand. And so Joab struck Amasa in the belly with that sword and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not, the screen doesn't even want to read that sentence anymore. It's so disgusting. Uh, his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again. And that's how Amasa died. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Okay. Joab is with Amasa, with Joab's men, but Joab's not in charge. He's been demoted. 
They're on the chase and Amasa catches up. And I picture this one like, hey guys, wait up, wait up. I'm the real commander. I'm really in charge here. You guys are supposed to be listening to me. And so, you know, Joab, he comes out to greet his brother warmly and his sword, the, 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 the ancient Hebrews carried a, a very short sword. This is not Excalibur we're talking about here. This is closer to like Crocodile Dundee's knife, Okay. And if I, I lost the younger ones here, I get that. But I have to speak in my heart language, okay, which is 80s movies. Uh, so this sword, we're told, just happens to fall out of Joab's, you know, scabbard there. Like first time with a sword, Joab? No. Uh, it just happens to fall out and he just happens to catch it in his left hand. And then he goes up to greet his brother warmly with the, the normal kisses of greeting and he keeps his right dangerous hand where he can see him and he grabs he grabs Amasa right here by the by the cheek to give him these kisses and he disembowels him with his left hand and that's how Amasa dies the striking part of this besides that is the last sentence just as and then Joab and his Joab and Abishai they just got back on the mission and went went on these are not men who are strangers to bloodshed. This, they act like this is old hat and no big deal. You know why? Because it's old hat and it's no big deal. To Joab, Amasa, you're the guy who took up arms against my king and you took my job. This is what you get. They don't even bother to scoot his body off the road, as we will see next. Verse 11. Now, there stood by Joab, one of Joab's young men, a soldier, who said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when that soldier saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into a field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by stood still. And as soon as Amasa's body was removed from the highway, then all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. This thing just keeps getting stranger, doesn't it? We just read the, the most disturbing roadkill story in history right there. So, here is the commanding general of the army laying there with his, surrounded by his own guts, right? And there is no, there's no outcry of somebody wanting Joab court-martialed, is there? The only outcry is someone says, well, that guy's gone. Anybody who wants off this ship, get off. Anybody who wants to follow Joab again, let's go. And nobody gets off. That's how Joab gets back in control of the army. The, in fact, the men help him literally cover up what he has done. Somebody moves, because everybody comes by and sees the spectacle. Well, there's the commanding general of the army. This is, seems unusual. No more stopping and staring. They just move him, cover him up. Let's get back on with the mission. Um, Joab is politically astute as well. Joab knows his men will follow him. 
And in fact, they pursue after Joab. After this, Joab is back in control. And Joab knows, if I go save David from himself again, if I go save the day and I'm successful and I have the loyalty of the army, David will never be able to fire me again. Nothing succeeds like success. And that's how he gets back in control. Verse 14. Now we're talking about Sheba here. So they're pursuing Sheba. And about Sheba, verse 14. Now he, Sheba, went through all the tribes of Israel to a place called Abel. It's also called by the name Bet Ma'akah. And uh, all the Berites, and they were gathered together and, were, and went after Sheba. And they, this is Joab and Abishai and the soldiers, they came and besieged Sheba in that town of Abel. And they cast up a siege ramp against the city and it stood by the rampart and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to tear the wall down. This escapes us, but here's what we're supposed to learn there. Sheba's mission to gather this huge army to be in rebellion against David has not worked. And here's how we know. He made it all, we don't know the map. This town, Abel, is way in the north. He started by Jerusalem and has gone all the way to the tip top of Galilee. And the only thing, he hasn't managed to gather any Israel. Some Beerites are with him. He, just, he doesn't have this huge force. Now he's just hiding in this walled city. So uh, Joab immediately puts the place under siege and makes, makes it very clear I'll do whatever it takes to get this guy. Now we're going to meet an unsung or a, 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 an unsung hero or a, an unlikely hero. Verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city. Hear, hear, please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So Joab approached this woman and she said, are you Joab? And he said, I am. And she said to him, listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. Verse 18. Then she spoke saying, you know, back in the good old days, formerly they used to say they will surely ask advice at Abel. And that's how people ended their disputes. People used to come here for good advice. Let me give you some good advice. That's what she says right there. Verse 19. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you destroy this place that God gave to us, swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, far be it from me, far be it from me that I should, should swallow up or destroy. That's not my intent, verse 21. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, he has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. And so Joab blew the trumpet, signaling the war is over. They dispersed from the city, each to his own tent. And Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. 
So, siege operations are continuing. Things are getting rough in the city. Uh, presumably a leading woman from the city gains an audience with Joab and says, what are you doing? This is not going to be good for you or anybody to, for you to kill a whole bunch of innocent people. Joab's like, that's not what I want to do. I'm just after this one guy. And tell, tells him who the problem is. The, the gal's like, hey, give me a minute. We'll play Annie Annie over with this dude's head. And uh, see, I'm hitting the older generation now. I want something for everyone. We'll play Annie Annie over with this guy's head if you just give me a minute. And that's what happens. Joab waits outside. He fair catches this guy's skull, right? Blows the trumpet game over and they all go home. I make light of it, but it's, I mean, it is a grisly, terrible scene. Everyone goes home and then we read this, what looks like throwaway verses, starting in verse 20. Joab, oh, sorry, starting in verse 23. Now, Joab was over the whole army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the Kerithites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was over the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, son of Elihud, was the recorder, and Sheba was scribe, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jairite, was also a priest to David." It's not that those four verses are filled with important information that we really need to know. They won't be on the test, I promise. Um, but here's what they tell us. After this, David like, goes back to actually being king. This is David organizing the government. He's no longer organizing the military for these threats. He's going back to, to running, to governing. He gives people jobs that people need in his administration. And that's the story. Now, see if any of this sounds familiar if you've been here while we read through this book. Um, David is faced with an internal rebellion, not an outside enemy, enemies in the midst. And there's a lot of violent bloodshed. Um, and his kingdom is restored through violence. Any of that sound familiar? There's even an unsung or an unexpected, an unlikely hero. We've seen a bunch of those in the books of Samuel, by the way. Unlikely heroes in Samuel. Hannah, at the very beginning. Samuel, David himself, was an unlikely hero at first. Jonathan, Abigail, Mephibosheth, and now this woman who doesn't even get named. She's just a wise woman. But again, as like I said at the beginning, as history repeats itself, it tends to get uglier. It tends to get nastier. Uh, it tends to get yuckier. I mean, Joab acts, dis behaves despicably in this. And David just sort of has to be okay with it. And the way David treated those 10 women is awful. And guys get disemboweled and their heads chopped off. And I just, I feel like I need to take a shower after reading this thing. So what could, what could you and I possibly learn from, from a story like that? If nothing else, this story, I, to me, brought up, would bring up this question. If this were the first time we were reading this, Maybe if we, were, if we were ancient Jews 3,000 years ago reading this for the first time and, and we didn't know what was coming later, 
I think we would ask this question. Is this what God's kingdom on earth is going to be like? I mean, this is God's chosen kingdom and God's hand-picked chosen king. So is this what it's always going to be like? I mean, David looks like any other tyrant who is trying to hold on to power by any means necessary. Is God's kingdom on earth always going to look like this? The answer to that question is yes and no. First, the yes part. God chose Israel to be his special people. And he chose David to be Israel's chosen king. And a line of kings will come from David. And for 600-ish years, 400-ish years, uh, that royal family ruled. And it was God's kingdom on earth. And there hasn't been a kingdom on a Jewish kingdom on earth since then, right? There hasn't been a king in Israel for, for a long, long time, like six, 2,600 years. So, and is, is this what we were reading today, what God's kingdom on earth was going to look like? Yeah. In fact, it got way worse. We're not going to keep going in First and Second Kings after we finish this book in a few weeks, but if you think David's a wreck, and he is, like he ain't seen nothing yet, they get worse and worse and more wicked. And they care less about what God thinks or wants. And the kingdom divides and, and it's, it's depressing and it's ugly. But on the other hand, the answer to that question is no. Is this what God's kingdom on earth will always be like? No. Because the king has come. His name is Jesus. And he didn't come to be king the first time. Right? His, his coronation was an execution. But we're told clearly in the scriptures, he's coming back to reign to rule, to be the king God promised from the beginning. So is God's kingdom on earth always going to be like this? No. And we have to remind ourselves why God chose David to be king. God did not choose David because God thought, God assumed, God hoped that David would be awesome, that David would be very moral, and that David would lead a kingdom of moral people who would live happily ever after, and it just didn't pan out the way God had hoped. That's not why David was made to be king. David was made king by God because God had promises to keep, and those promises are way bigger than David. God promised from the very first sin to send a savior who would crush the serpent, reverse the curse that sin let in to us and to the world. 
And then he promised Abraham through your descendants. That, I mean, the Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament is who is that Savior going to be? Who is the serpent crusher? Who is the curse reverser? How will we know him when he shows up? Well, God shows up to a guy named Abraham and says, okay, he's going to be one of your descendants. And he gives that promise again to, his, to Abraham's son, Isaac, his son, Jacob, his son, Judah. And then God shows up to David, makes David king and says, here's why I made you king. Because the savior, the serpent crusher, the curse reverser is going to be a king. And in some ways he's going to be like David. Some ways he's going to be like David. He's going to be one of David's descendants, but he's going to rule forever and ever and ever. You know why David was made king? Because God promised to bring a savior who would be a king. Come from a royal family. And there's a really sneaky temptation, a wrong idea to get when we read this story and stories like it in the life of David. See if you've ever felt like this. You ever read this in your Bible reading plan? You get to this chapter and kind of go, oh man, I wish I didn't know that about David. Do you feel like, man, I wish David was better. You feel like that? It's okay to admit. I felt like that. That's not the impact this story is supposed to have on us. I think for hundreds and hundreds of years, Israelites read this and that's what they hoped because there's this longing in Israel. We just want to go back to the good old days when David was king, when Solomon was king. That's not what they should want. You know why? The good old days weren't all that good. They looked like what we just read. And that was as good as it ever got. We shouldn't read this and have a, come away with a desire that David would be better. We should read this and come away with a longing for a better David. We need a better king. And he's coming. The second thing. Jesus is the better David. The better David has come, but he is coming. And he will be like David, only better in militarily. Like David defeated all of Israel's enemies. He just didn't take care of the ones inside very well. But Jesus is going to come back and defeat every enemy of God. And that's going to be awesome. So he's going to be better than David like powerful wise and militarily wise but listen he's better than david in every way let's talk about that that verse three you know that verse three that parentheses where david didn't know what to do with the 10 women and so he just kind of locked them away and like they were guarded damaged goods david didn't know what to do damaged people, damaged goods. Do you know Jesus is not like that at all? Matthew quoted Isaiah. So what's on the screen here shows up in two books, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Isaiah said this first. Matthew said, trust me, I knew Jesus. He was a friend of mine. This describes him really well. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. You know what that means? Reeds were the, the tubes that certain plants grow on, and when, the, and when the stalk gets dried out, it's very rigid and useful. Like bamboo is the world's toughest reed, but there's lots of them. In the ancient world, people used reeds for pins. They used words for, uh, reeds for measuring rods. Uh, on boats, like to add buoyancy. Very useful, those reeds. But here's the thing about a reed. Once it gets dented in one place, it's, never, it's just never going to be good again. The only thing any logical person would either just throw it away or at least cut out the damaged part and see if you had, you know, two, then you have two smaller reeds, see if you can do something with, with them. But it's just never going to be the same ever again. Same is true with a smoldering wick. Wicks were made of flax. We're talking about in an oil lamp. Once a wick got to smoldering, lots of black smoke inside your house. The light wasn't good. You couldn't keep using it. You had to snuff it out, throw it away. Maybe there was enough left to cut out uh, the bad part and start over. But same, the idea is the same thing. Logic tells us you just get rid of what is damaged and not useful to you anymore. But this is about people. And Isaiah said, Messiah won't be like that. Matthew said, Jesus is the Messiah. And let me tell you, he's a friend of mine. I know it. He doesn't get rid of damaged people. He doesn't treat people like damaged goods. He restores. See, in Jesus, not only do we have a more powerful warrior than David, we have a more tender restorer and healer than your mama. The world tends to not know what to do with people who are hurt, broken, damaged, who don't seem useful to me. Some of you know what that feels like. I want you to know that Jesus is the better David. If you read verse 3 and are sickened by David, good. I think that's the idea. Because our author brought along by the Holy Spirit somehow knew David isn't the one people need. And part of the reason why is David doesn't know what to do with people who are really severely damaged. Jesus does. He doesn't cast away. He doesn't find damaged people unuseful. He actually uses their damage. He heals them. He makes them strong again. And then he uses them to help people with similar damage. He does it all the time. So as we read this ugly, terrible, sickening passage, let it build within you a desire for the better David, the one who is coming. But also understand what that means. Not just he's going to be king and beat all the bad guys someday. That's true and it's awesome. But even right now, Jesus is the one who knows what to do 
like with our hurts, with, with what has damaged us. He doesn't cast out the smoldering wick, the, 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 the bruised reed. He's the one who, who heals, who cares, who loves. And he can do that already right now before he comes to defeat all the bad guys. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, even the disturbing parts, even the parts that make us feel yucky when we read it. So God, I pray that you would build in us a yearning and a desire for the better David, for the one who, yes, will rule and reign with justice and will be victorious, will bring uh, justice to its completeness, but also for the Jesus who, who healed the woman with the issue of bleeding, who, who touched lepers, who friended the friendless. For you are not just mighty warrior. You are tender, restoring friend. And God is as we try to be more and more like our king, maybe we should be less warrior and more tender, restoring friend. God, thank you for your words. Thank you that you know how to use and care for those of us who have been damaged by the ugliness of this world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and let's finish.